The book of Revelation, of course, as, as we've learned, is, is a great book. It's, it's cosmic. It's a vision. So John, on, a, on an island called Patmos, received this vision. And so he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to write it down. And so what we have in the book of Revelation is John's vision of the end times, the last days. And one of the awesome and, and triumphant themes throughout is that the victory is the Lord's. We see, we've read about the beast, we've learned about the dragon, we've learned about all kinds of, frankly, some scary topics and some difficult to understand topics. But one of the wonderful truths of the book of Revelation is that, that the decisive victory, the, the battle is won by Christ. But Revelation is a, it's a pastoral book. There's a, there's a lot of great themes in there. And two of the things that stand out are, are, one of them is a warning to Christians, to the saints. There's a warning against evil and against sin and against following the ways of this world. So there's a warning, but there's also a call to endurance. In fact, in chapter 13 and 14, in the middle of a vision that John has, there's words that say, this is a call for endurance to the saints. A call for endurance. And so, if you're a student in a law or if, you, if you're a lawyer, you'll know what's called the case method. And what the case method is, is it's using the law to interpret and apply the law, to apply the law rather. And so what lawyers will do, or certainly good lawyers, what they'll do is they'll go back. If there's a case that they're faced with today, they'll go back five, six, 10, 20 years, whatever it is, to a previous case deep down in, the, in the, the dusty cellar of wherever they keep those folders and they dust one off and they see how a particular law was, was applied into a particular situation. And what they do is they use that law to apply the law in this case today. So we're going to be not law students, but we're going to be theolo theology students. We're going to use scripture to interpret and apply scripture. Uh, that's the best, most effective ways to use scripture to interpret Scripture. So if you're wondering why it's a series in Revelation, but I'm in Romans, it's not because I can't read. It's because it's relevant and it's, it's, uh, it's applicable to us this morning. So I've showed you my work and uh, let's get into it. So I'll read uh, Romans chapter 5, the first five verses. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you and uh, you should be able to find it there. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And if you're sitting there going, wow, that is a lot, that's the point. What Paul has done here is he's almost made a snowball, if you will, and he's just rolled it down the hill. And this snowball's gained momentum and it's built up and been built up into this giant snowball of theology. And so if you're sitting there thinking, wow, this is a lot to process, welcome. So my job, my, my, my objective rather, this morning is twofold. The first thing I want to do is kind of unpack. Let's see how Paul got to where he, where he is. Let's see what his big theological idea is. And then the second thing I want to do is draw out two points of application. So we'll look at what Paul's saying. We'll look at how he got to where he is. And then we'll apply it in two different ways. So let's jump right in. The verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's 
assumed something. I mean, if you've ever walked into a conversation where there's some people around and they're talking about something and you want to be a part of the conversation, well, they need to bring you up to speed. They need to tell you what they're talking about. Otherwise, you'll just feel silly standing there nodding and smiling. Paul does the same thing. He says, therefore. In the whole previous, in, in the whole previous chapter, Paul's just finished a long discourse, a, an argument. He's proven a point that Christians are justified and he used Abraham as an example. He says that Abraham was justified by faith. It wasn't because he was extra righteous. It wasn't because he, you know, he said the right prayer or he had some extra special qualities. He was justified, <clears throat> excuse me, because of his faith alone. That word justification is, it's a legal term. It's a term you'll hear used in courts or uh, in, the, in the judicial system. And what it means is it's an acquittal of guilt. So it's a removal of guilt but it's also the, the declaration of being made righteous. And so if you commit a crime, however great or small the crime might be, there's going to be a, a punishment. There's going to be a penalty for that crime. And if you've paid that, paid that penalty, that in a sense has taken away the guilt. You've paid the debt. But more than that, you can apply for a pardon. And once you've been pardoned from something, you, you've received all the benefits that you had before you committed the crime. And so another way to understand is to think of, think of a young couple who's about to be married and the wife-to-be, the wife rather, is through, through a series of unfortunate circumstances and some poor decisions, she's just almost drowning in debt. She's about to have everything taken away from her and she's in trouble. Massive amount of debt. Now the husband-to-be, on the other hand, through some inheritances and some, some good choices and through some good hard work, is enormously wealthy. So this husband has a choice, doesn't he? What's he gonna do? Is he gonna walk away? Or is he gonna marry this, marry this woman, marry his bride? Now, if he chooses to marry this bride, the, the, the bride, the woman, is, is a recipient of justification. And, and what I mean by that is the husband, because of their relationship, is going to pay off those debts. He's going to save her from a debt that she couldn't pay. But more than that, so he pays her debt off, but more than that, he shares the remainder of his wealth with her forevermore. For as long as they're married, she's a recipient of that enormous wealth. And so as Christians, we're justified. Christ not only paid the price for our sins... But when God looks down at us, he doesn't see our sins and our past and our mistakes and our failures. He sees Christ's righteousness upon us when he sees us. So that's Paul's assumption is that we've been justified by faith. He says this, you have, we have peace with God. And this peace isn't just as if God decided to, to cool down for a minute or take a break from his vengeful wrath is coming again. No, when Paul says we have peace with God, this is a, this word means, it's, it comes from the word shalom, which means a full, a complete, a whole type of rest. It's a, it's a restored relationship. So through faith, we're not only justified, but we have shalom. We have a right, restored relationship with God, our Father. And so this is the base, this is the basis, this is the founding argument of what Paul is saying here in the coming verses. So we've established that we're justified by faith. Read along with me, verses 2 and following. Through him, Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. He says two interesting things. He says, first of all, he says, rejoice in the, in the hope of the glory of God. You ever thought about that term? Yes, God is glorious. God's, God's glory talks about his, his majesty, his splendor, 
his holiness. But when we talk about the hope of the glory of God, this is a present hope. This is something we do today, we do right now, with hope of something in the future. Have you ever hoped for something in the future? We do this all the time. My, my son, he's three, and we started a tradition last year, thanks to my, my parents. They got him an advent calendar. <clears throat> and an advent calendar, if, if you don't, have never used one, is you, you, you open it, you start using it beginning of December. And each day there's a little door that you open and inside each door is a little chocolate. And kids like to do this. It's a fun tradition to anticipate Christmas. Christmas is coming. That's the hope. But each day you celebrate and you rejoice because you get each day a little glimpse, a little taste, this anticipation that Christmas is coming. And so we rejoice as Christians in the hope, the eventual, it's, it's a present reality, but it's an eventual event that will take place, which we'll talk about briefly or in, in a moment. So the Christian hope is God's future glory. But in the meantime, we rejoice expectantly. We have an expectation as Christians. And so we can rejoice with expectancy at the hope of the glory of God. The second thing Paul says that I find interesting that I want to touch on briefly is he says rejoice in our sufferings. I don't know about you, but <clears throat> excuse me, that's, that's a little bit backwards. To rejoice in sufferings but he says, he goes further to say that suffering has a purpose. Suffering, there's a point to it. God doesn't stand up there and just inflict pain on us, you know, like an ant through a, micro, like a, like a magnifying glass. He's not, he's not a tyrant. He's not angry. He doesn't torture us for fun. But there's a, there's a point. There's a goal behind our sufferings. And he, he gives it to us. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces this hope. There's a passage in, in Acts 5 where the early church, some disciples, what they're doing is, is they're going, they're evangelizing, they're preaching, and they're teaching the good news of Jesus, and people are coming to faith, and it's incredible, and it's amazing, and they're performing miracles, and the Holy Spirit is at work through the apostles. But what happens is they get arrested, and they get thrown into prison because this is blasphemy, right? They're upsetting kind of the status quo of, Ju of Judaism, so they get locked up. But one night, an angel comes, breaks into the prison, the public prison in Jerusalem, and sets them free. And it says the next morning the jailers were dumbfounded because the doors were still locked, but no one was there. And so the officials come in, they're looking for the, the, the disciples, the apostles, but they're not there. They've been set free. Meanwhile, they're out evangelizing. They haven't stopped. They, it's like they didn't miss a beat. They're, they're, they're preaching and they're teaching. But then they get brought in again and they get beaten, physically beaten. And they get told to stop it. And here's what's interesting. It doesn't say that the, that the apostles renounced their faith and walked away because God gave them something that they weren't expecting. It doesn't say that. You know what it says in verse 40, 41 and 2 of chapter 5? It says, they left the presence of the council, catch this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name Verse 42 basically says they didn't stop. They kept going. They were told not to, but then they also say that, well, we could either obey you or we could obey God. So every day in the temple and from, then from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So the apostles rejoiced because they, they were counted worthy. They, there was some kind of honor there to suffer affliction and pain for the name of Christ. We don't know a lot about what the promises of suffering are. Scripture talks about suffering and promises that as Christians we will be afflicted. We'll suffer. It's not limited either. Physical, spiritual, emotional, 
It's not limited. Mental suffering. What are you suffering with? What are you suffering with? A good friend of mine, his name is Greg. He's a pastor, and a few years ago, him and his wife Sarah had the privilege of welcoming their, their first son. And they named him Benji, and Benji was born, and they were home within a few days. But about six weeks into Benji's short life, he began to, to demonstrate some concerning habits. He began to demonstrate some seizure-type activity, and like any parent, you're, you're, you're freaked out, you're panicked. If you're, you're always not sure if your kid's doing what they're supposed to do. And so they brought Benji in for some testing to see what, what, what was going on, and they had people praying for them and asking that uh, God would, would, would take away these symptoms and that God would, would spare them and God would save them from something much worse. And so Greg and Sarah went, to, went for a, a test, and they needed to go back for more testing. And through a series of procedures, they found out that Benji had a, a severe chromosomal deficiency. One of his chromosomes was, was partially deleted. And so at the time, they didn't know what would this look like. They knew he'd be delayed. They knew that he'd have some developmental delays. They knew that he would always need some level of care, but they didn't know what, to what level. And they thought, well, maybe he, the doctors thought, maybe he'll never learn to walk. Maybe he'll never learn to talk. Maybe he'll never establish these social skills. And so friends of Greg's, like myself, said, Greg, this isn't right. This isn't how it should be. How, how could God do this to you? How could God hand you this situation? It's an injustice, right? Like Job's friends or Job's wife. Curse God and die. This isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. You talk to Greg now where Benji does in fact have a, have a, a significant developmental delay. He's, he's four years old now. He's learning to walk slowly, but he'll always need a certain level of, of aid and a certain level of care. And you talk to Greg now, four years out, and he'll tell you this. He'll say that this isn't what Sarah and I had planned. We didn't expect this. But he'll tell you that through this circumstance, through his son Benji, he's learned what it means to suffer well. Because he knows that Benji won't always be this way. Because he has a hope. He has a hope that endures, that Benji one day will be restored when God comes and restores all of creation. He says, I've learned what it means to suffer well. So let me ask you, are you suffering well? Are you suffering well? Here's what scripture tells us, that our joy isn't found in our present circumstances. And if it is, your joy will come and go like the wind. You're joyful one moment, you're sorrowful the next. That's because of our broken world. But if our joy is found on something other than our circumstances, something that can't be taken away, then our joy will, will prevail, our joy will be sustained. And so as Christians, our joy isn't rooted in our circumstances. Rather, our joy is rooted in the promises of God, that God is who he says he is, and he'll do what he says he'll do. He'll fulfill his promises. It's the great hope we have as Christians so please don't hear me wrong. I don't think we should, as Christians, the message of Scripture isn't that we should go out and seek suffering and find ways to, to punish ourselves. I don't think that's the message of Scripture at all. But I think in our afflictions and in our sufferings, we shouldn't look to our left and to our right and see how our neighbors are suffering and wishing we were like them or glad we're not like that person. As Christians, our hope transcends, our hope is beyond our circumstances, but we should seek to suffer well. And we should seek the fruit that, that, that comes, that's produced from having a hope that endures. Which takes us to verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame. This hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we've walked through Paul's five verses, Paul's heavy five verses. And here's Paul, is what I think one of Paul's theological declarations is. Here's what I think his main idea of this passage is. And that, that is this, is that Christians have a hope that endures. And that's easy to say, right? It's easy to say, yeah, I have, I have a hope. It, 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 it's beyond. My joy is in the Lord. Yeah, yeah, I do. But what happens when you suffer? Where's your joy then? Is your joy in your circumstances? Or does your joy transcend that? Does your joy endure beyond that? Here's two reasons I think Paul gives us that we have, the reasons why we have a hope that endures, and they're this. We know how the story ends, first of all. And second of all, we know whose we are. So let's jump into these. First of all, we know how the story ends. I have a good friend, his name's Jamie. And Jamie hates surprises. Him and his wife love to watch movies, but one of the things that Jamie will always do consistently, if there's a new movie that's out, he'll go online. It's the first thing he does because he wants to see how it ends. It's called a spoiler. So he'll go online intentionally looking for spoilers. Maybe in some of your, in your circles, people, ah, don't tell me, I don't want to hear, I'm going to go see it next week. Don't tell me, don't spoil it. Jamie's the opposite. Jamie needs the spoilers. He must have some anxiety issue of some kind, but he needs to know how this thing is going to end so that he can relax and enjoy the plot. He may not know every, every you know, scene or every plot development that happens or every character, but he can rest confidently knowing that whatever happens in the film, whatever happens, he, he can be confident knowing how the movie ends. And I think as Christians, our assurance is, is the same. We, we've got a spoiler. We've read the spoilers. We know that the, the, the battle's won. The victory is Christ's. And that's what our hope is in is that we've got the spoiler, we can be confident, and we aren't shaken by, by storms and waves and suffering and trial and adversity because our hope transcends all of those, all of those things. Our hope is, is beyond that. Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word hope, notice it doesn't say wish. We rejoice because we wish God would one day come back. No, he says hope. Hope isn't based on anything but God's faithfulness. It has nothing to do with how well we hope or how, how hard we work to hope and believe and God, I'm, I'm hoping here that you'll really pull through. No. Our hope is certain because God is faithful all the time. It's not a wish. In verse 5, it says that this same hope doesn't put you to shame. Have you ever felt shamed? Or have you ever felt like you've been swindled? Not knowing how something was going to end and you've been tricked, you've been duped into something that you were misled to believe. There's a story in the news this week of an elderly lady, she was in her 90s on the east coast of Canada. And she received a phone call one morning a few weeks ago from who she thought was her grandson, Colin. And Colin found himself, he had a long story through a series of, of unfortunate events, he found himself in police custody. He was in an accident that was admittedly his fault and he needed $9,500 cash in order to be able to pay off the authorities so that they would release him from police custody. So like any loving, compassionate grandmother, she, 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 she helped him. In a, moment, in a moment of despair of her grandson, Colin, she wanted to so desperately help in this time of need. Now, Colin also said, you must send cash. And he sent the address to where he said he was. And he said, don't tell my parents about this, please, but I need your help. And so what did grandma do? She went straight to the, the TD bank where she held her savings account and she withdrew what the news article says was the majority of her savings. She took out $9,500 in cash 
and then went next door to the FedEx center and paid $67 to mail this cash overnight to the address he provided in, in the province of Quebec. And he got a, she got a call the next day thanking grandma for the money. And then another request came and said, well, since the, the plot's thickened overnight and I need another $6,500 to be able to pay for some of the damages to the other vehicle and so on and so forth. And at this point, grandma said, you know, I, I can't help you, but keep asking. We'll, we'll try to make this work for you. So a couple days go by and she hadn't heard anything beyond that. So she decided that it was time for Colin to come clean with his parents. And so she phoned Colin at his house to talk with the parents and she asked to speak with Colin as well. And a light went on, the penny dropped when, when Colin came on the phone and had no idea what she was talking about. In that moment, this lady says this, she says, I felt stupid. I was ashamed, but it was too late. This lady fell into deception. She was tricked. She was hoodwinked. She didn't know how the story was going to end, and she was, she was deceived. But brothers and sisters, we have hope that we aren't going to be deceived. There's no trick. This is no illusion. This is no mirage, because it's based on God's faithfulness, God's character, that he is who he says he is, and he'll do what he says he's going to do. We know how the story ends. We aren't wishing here. We have a hope that endures. There's no twist ending to our faith. So our hope does not put us to shame. Why? Well, because we know the ending. But I think secondly, it's because we know whose we are, which is our second point this morning that we'll, that we'll explore. God's love has been poured into hearts through the, our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Listen, if you're justified by faith, if you're, if you're a believer this morning, if you're a Christian and Jesus is Lord over your life, Paul's promise is that you've been justified. So you have access to God's grace. You have peace with God. All those things are true. But what else is true is that you've received the promise of the Holy Spirit poured into your heart from God. Another way to put it, Paul says this in, in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, that we Christians were sealed with the promise, ho promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. Imagine a, a young man again, maybe the same young man from my previous story who's about to marry his wife. It's time to buy an engagement ring, right? So he goes to the jewelry store and he picks out the one he wants, but of course that's three months pay in a ring. He doesn't have the money right away, so what, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to leave a deposit. He's going to leave a down payment. He's going to give all the money he has and says, look, I'm buying this ring. I'm coming back for this ring. Here's my guarantee. So now the jeweler can't sell that ring to someone else because it's spoken for. There's a seal. There's a guarantee on it. There's a down payment on that ring. There's a down payment on us as Christians. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the seal. Jesus says in John 14, I'll not, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming for you. We have confidence. We have hope that we've been marked by God. And it's the Holy Spirit indwelling in us that preserves us, that protects us, that gives us the ability to endure. See, enduring isn't just about cowering in the corner and just taking on all the heat and just waiting the, letting the waves crash on you and the darts penetrate. No. It's because we are strengthened by the Holy Spirit to endure the trials, the tribulations, and the affliction because we're God's. Jesus says this in John 10. You'll hear the language of sheep a lot in Revelation as well. We're called sheep. Sheep aren't very smart, by the way. 
My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Listen, if you're justified, if you're saved, if the Holy Spirit's dwelling in you, that can't change. You're sealed. There's a promise you belong to God. And it's because of that, that through those moments of trial and tribulation that will come in life, most certainly, that we can endure, that our hope can, can take us past the trials and the sufferings. So this morning's command, this morning's message is simply this, to, to rejoice in hope. And I don't know about you, but there's moments where I forget, what is my hope? What's my hope as a Christian? What's this all about? Well, the end of Revelation, in the closing chapters, we get a beautiful vision of the Christian hope. I want to share it with you. There's a loud, thunderous voice from the throne of heaven that says these words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be more shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We suffer, we do. But we know that it won't always be this way. And it's because of that that we can rejoice. And so this morning, as we approach the Lord's table, as we approach the communion meal, remember that it won't always be the way it is. We can rejoice not only in the fact that we're justified and we have access to God's grace and we have peace with God, but that our hope as Christians is beyond this world, that one day things will be restored and the suffering won't prevail. Pray with me. Father, for this promise of your future glory, I am so grateful. And Father, it's our hope as Christians, as sealed ones, that you will come again. You'll restore all things. So Father, to that end, I pray that we would suffer well, that we would learn to grow, that we would seek the, the fruit that's produced by endurance. It's by your grace, Lord, and in your name. Amen.